We've been going this quarter through a study in the book of what? Genesis. Genesis. Good. If someone would say it's Revelation, we're going to have to start all over. (laughs) We've been going through the book of Genesis, and uh, today we'll kind of bring that to a close. Next Sabbath, we'll be having a special guest speaker from the conference office. Our conference treasurer, Leroy Brooke, will be here talking about stewardship specifically as it relates to the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So we want to make sure to be there for that. But you'd be here anyway because it's a Sabbath, and that's what we do as we come together at church. Amen? Good, good, good. (laughs) But the book of Genesis, as you recall, opens with the contiguous stories of the creation account and the fall of man into sin. But in each of those stories, Jesus Christ is the active agent of the Godhead. In creation, he's the creator. And in the story of the fall, he's the promised redeemer. And today we'll see, by God's grace, that the book of Genesis closes through the life of Joseph with a fascinating foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as not only our Redeemer, but also our soon-coming King. Before we do any study of God's Word, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You are our creator and our redeemer, and that you communicate with us through your word. Lord, help us to see that word more clearly, and more importantly than merely understanding the words or seeing the stories at face value, help us to go beyond the surface reading, and help us to see that your word testifies of Jesus Christ, and that he is our central hope, focus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John. I know we've been studying the book of Genesis, and we still are, but I want to bring to your attention a pivotal principle that Jesus Christ, in his ministry here on earth, articulated to those around him, particularly to those who were harassing him. Now, Jesus was harassed by all kinds of people, but none more spitefully and consistently than the Jewish leaders and the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those scholars in the Word of God. You'll find frequently as you go through a story of the life of Jesus, whichever gospel you choose, you'll find that there were people who would try to snare him and trap him and corner him and test him, tempt him, try him, all based on the Word of God. They would say, now, which commandment is the greatest? What must I do to be saved? What does the law say? What about this law? What about Moses said this? But what do you say? There's all kinds of traps that they would try to put Jesus into to trip him up about his knowledge of the Word of God. But in response to one of these, in the book of John, chapter 5, Jesus lays out a crucial principle of Bible study. A crucial principle of Bible study. And you might be thinking again, why are we in the Gospel of John? Why are we talking about Bible study when we're supposed to be learning about Joseph? We're getting there. But let's start with John chapter 5. And we're going to go to verse 39. Again, in another contention with his rivalries, Jesus says these words, starting with verse 39. You search the Scriptures. Now we'll pause right there. That's an accurate statement. The people that Jesus was interacting who were contending against Jesus were scholars in the Word of God. They were students of the Scriptures. They were well-versed in the verses, if you will. They knew their scrolls and Torahs. They were familiar with every story that we've been covering in this book. They knew better than I do. 
Let's be clear about that. And he says to them, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Now, that's a bit of a weird statement. Do we not have eternal life from the word of God? Well, sure we do, but what does he mean? Apparently, in their searching of the scripture, their raw knowledge of the word of God, they founded their hope of eternal life. That I know the word of God, we've been entrusted with this story. We are familiar with these experiences in the past that God has recorded in his word. Therefore, we have salvation. But notice what Jesus says again. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But notice what he adds. And these are they which testify of whom? Me. Now these were scholars in the word of God, but when the culmination of all the hopes of scripture came to them in person, face to face, they rejected him and wanted him to die. And Jesus says in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Apparently, the scripture is not an end to itself, but it is a means to the end, which is Jesus Christ. The purpose of scripture is not just to familiarize yourself with a good, solid history, which it is, or with stories of personal, practical application, though they're very good for that. The central purpose of scripture is to uplift and clarify and point us to Jesus Christ, period. Now, I do not wish to repeat the mistake of those enemies of Christ. Let me explain what I mean. I would hate to have come to the end of this survey of the book of Genesis and leave you with the impression that it was written to teach us little life lessons from the stories of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. While those individuals are obviously main characters in the book of Genesis, the record of their lives was preserved to draw people to the true central figure of all Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. So when you read through Genesis, you're not just saying, oh, that's what happened to Noah. You're thinking, oh, that's a prefigurement of Christ. Somehow that teaches me something about Jesus, who's the central figure. Let me give you some illustrations of this from the book of Genesis. In the opening lines of Genesis chapter 1, hopefully we're all very well familiar with this passage where we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is a statement of fact, both theologically and, I will add, scientifically. Yet the Apostle Paul clarifies what is being talked about. Go to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, and notice what the Apostle Paul testifies about this God who created the heavens and the earth. Colossians chapter 1, and in verses 16 and 17, he is explicitly writing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that second member of the Godhead, and notice his language talking about Jesus. It says, for by him, again, that is Jesus Christ, all things were what? Created that are in heaven and on the earth. So the God who created heaven and earth was none other than Jesus Christ, our creator. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So the creation story, though it looks like it's about the earth and Adam and Eve and the plants and the trees, it's about Jesus Christ being seen through his creation. The story is the creator himself. 
says in verse 17, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. The creation story is really a story of Jesus as our creator. Of course, just two chapters later in the saga of Genesis, after the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2, we find Genesis chapter 3, when man falls into sin. Humanity rebels against their creator. But right there in the heart of that account, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we find what is technically known as the very first messianic prophecy, which is simply a foretelling, a prediction of the coming Savior, who of course was Jesus Christ. But they don't refer to him by name, but they mention him as the seed that would bruise or crush the Satan's or the serpent's head, pointing forward to Jesus as a Savior. So as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Later in the book of Genesis, it was Christ, along with two angels, who visited Abraham and revealed to him God's plan, both for Abraham's future heir and for the imminent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Christ had a big plan about the future of Israel and the destruction of the wicked, which, by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah prefigures the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world, does it not? Multiple times in the New Testament, they serve as an example for the end days, right? It was Jesus Christ who came down here and explained the future of Israel to Abraham and then told him about the destruction of the wicked that was going to come under his leadership. It's fascinating. Think about Jacob in his flight from Esau. It was Christ who was represented by that ladder shown him in vision. When he laid down and put the rock under his head, he feared for his life and he was guilty And God opened the windows of heaven and showed him, prefigured, an image of Jesus. By the way, how do we know that that ladder represents Jesus? Because it was Jesus himself who in John chapter 1 and verse 51 said, you will see the Son of Man with angels descending and ascending upon him. He said, that's me. It's a picture of the Savior. So yes, there are stories about Jacob and Abraham and Adam and all the other characters, but the central figure of all Scripture is Jesus Christ behind all of the stories. Now, what I want to, I preface all of that for our study today. Today's sermon is a little bit different than normal. A, because it's going to be relatively short, and all the people said. That wasn't, that was entrapment. I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But not only that, it has a very straightforward, very simple point that I want to bring out that perhaps you have not seen from the Scriptures. Now, we could rehearse the story of Joseph. It's the last story in the book of Genesis. We could go through all the steps of his betrayal by his brothers, his being sold into slavery, his, his, his ascendancy through those ranks to the leadership in Egypt, and the salvation of his family through God's providence. We could go through every bit of that. And it's all true. And it's also probably something we're very familiar with. What I'd like to do today is to show you Jesus through the story of Joseph. By far, the most complete picture of Jesus in Genesis is seen in that closing story of the book, The Life and Times of Joseph. Thus, the title of today's message, Of Joseph and Jesus. Now, if you were to study the companion book to this book of Genesis, the commentary in Patriarchs and Prophets, which I'd highly urge you to do, you will find this one sentence on page 239 of the book Patriarchs and Prophets. Simple but profoundly significant. Please listen carefully. Quote, 
The life of Joseph illustrates the life of Christ. Okay? The life of Joseph apparently is an illustration, a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus, who would come literally hundreds, if not thousands of years later. What follows that sentence are several paragraphs outlining just some of the ways in which the life of Joseph foreshadowed the life of Jesus. Though the experiences of Joseph of Jesus, of course, were in a great deal different and not at all identical, there are striking similarities between the two that we should notice. And that's the burden of our message today. For instance, if you were to study through, and we could read it straight from the Scripture, but I'm assuming a certain level of familiarity with the story of Joseph that now we can springboard into the deeper end. Every now and then we can take off the floaties and go into the deep end, yes? Okay. Joseph was, a, was the beloved son of his father in Canaan, yes? Jesus was the, the only begotten son of his father in heaven. Though he has many different children, there's one that has preeminence over the others, both in the life of Joseph and in the life of Jesus. Do you see what we're doing? Very simple. If you recall, Scripture tells us that Joseph was sent by his father on a mission to find his wayward brothers. And of course, Jesus was sent by his father on a mission to seek and to save his wayward people. Joseph, by the way, was hated by his brothers because his life of faithfulness exposed their wickedness. You see that from the very opening pages of Joseph's story. Right there off the bat, the other brothers, as we studied last time, were being naughty, and Joseph would tell. He knew the difference between right and wrong. He lived the right, they lived the wrong, and I, I can't speak for you, so I won't presume to, but I know in my own life and experience, if I've ever been on the naughty side of naughty versus nice, the good guy coming in the room irks you. Not because he's offensive inherently, but because of his faithfulness, his obedience is a striking standing rebuke to your disobedience, and you just don't like it. This is the experience of Joseph with his brothers, and sure enough, it was the same thing with Jesus and his brothers and those people of his nation he came to save. Jesus was hated by his own people because his life of faithfulness exposed their wickedness. You recall in John chapter 3, What Jesus said to Nicodemus. He says, this is the condemnation. That light has shone in the darkness, but they love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were what? Evil. It's not because they couldn't like Jesus. They wouldn't because they preferred darkness over light. This was the experience of Joseph with his brothers. They liked being naughty, and Joseph got in their way. So, when he was sent on that mission to his brothers, instead of appreciating his arrival, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him. Similarly, instead of appreciating his arrival, Jesus' own people plotted to kill him. You recall what the Gospel of John says? He came to his own, and his own received him not. Joseph was sold to his captors for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold to his captors 
for 30 pieces of silver. In his Egyptian captivity, Joseph was repeatedly and severely tempted right off the bat. But he remained faithful and did not commit sin against God. You recall, as soon as he was sold, he was sold into the home of whom? Potiphar. And Potiphar had a wife who took a keen eye to Joseph. And repeatedly, the Bible says, over and over, she would come to him with the same temptation or a variation of the same thing, trying to get him to commit a sin, not only against Potiphar, but as Joseph would say, against God himself. But he refused to do so and was rewarded greatly for his fidelity, was he not? No. But he resisted and he overcame. Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, the Bible records that as soon as he came up out of the water, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And time and again, Satan would come to him cleverly, subtly, temptingly. In fact, he laid the whole world before him. I have to imagine, by the way, that Mrs. Potiphar didn't just come with herself. I'm guessing she brought some incentive. Said, you know, you're a slave, but we could change that. We could fix your position. We could give you a higher standing. How did Satan come to Christ? He says, all of the glories of the world I will give you if you just do this one thing. But praise the Lord. Though Jesus was repeatedly and severely tempted in all points likened to as we are, yet he was without sin. When Joseph refused to sin against God, he was imprisoned on the basis of false accusations. When Jesus refused to sin against God, he was arrested on the basis of false accusations. How did they get Joseph in trouble? Lies. They could find nothing wrong with them, so she had to lie and say something that happened when it didn't. Same thing happened with Jesus. They could find, like the prophet Daniel, no corruption nor negligence in him. And so they had to make up and get false witnesses and put a shambles of a trial together just to put him under their control. Now, we're progressively going from the simple to the deep, okay? Now we're going to get waist deep. The very plan by which Joseph's enemies purposed to thwart the prophecies concerning him actually ended up fulfilling those very prophecies. I'm going to say that again. That might have been a little complicated. Here we go. The very plan, think it through, by which Joseph's enemies purposed to thwart the prophecies concerning him actually ended up fulfilling those very prophecies. You remember that Joseph had dreams when he was young, yes? And he had dreams of sheaves of wheat representing his brothers, and there was the one representing himself, and all the brothers bowed down to him and worshipped him and were kneeling before him. And in his young naivete, he said, Hey, brothers, I had a dream. But they didn't like it. Why didn't they like that dream? Because it struck at their pride. They wanted to be the sheaf in the middle. They didn't like the idea of kowtowing to this young Joseph, this spotless, sinless one. Ugh. And so they decided to thwart those prophecies. We'll destroy him. Remember when he came down to visit them? They said, here comes that what? Dreamer. They thought, we know about his dreams, and we're going to change the outcome of those prophecies, and we're going to destroy Joseph right here, right now, today. But that very scheme that they thought would destroy him ended up fulfilling the prophecies that they were trying to stop the exact same thing happened in the life of Jesus. The very 
plan by which Jesus' enemies purposed to thwart the prophecies concerning him actually ended up fulfilling those very prophecies. When Jesus was dying on the cross, that wasn't what was unanticipated by Scripture. He was able to quote the Psalms, anticipating Isaiah, like the sheep to the slaughter, all the things that had been prophesied about him by their efforts to end Jesus actually fulfilled to the letter every prophecy written about him. It's fascinating. Let's go even deeper. The very act by which Joseph's brothers sought to destroy him namely turning him over to the Egyptians to be enslaved, ended up being the very means God used to save them from starvation and death. Think about it. They thought to end Joseph, but it ended up that that action ended up saving them in the end. Same thing happened with Jesus Christ. The very act by which Jesus' people sought to destroy him, namely turning him over to the Romans to be crucified, was the very means God used to save them, and by the way, us, if we desire it to, from sin and death. They thought to end Jesus, and in response, Jesus saved them. It's a beautiful thought. Let's continue on. When Joseph's brothers finally recognized him, We've had to study about that. They had change over time. They didn't look at Joseph the same at the end of his life that they did at the beginning. By the end, they wished they could have an opportunity to see Joseph again and to repent and to confess and to say they were sorry, to apologize to his face. And sure enough, that opportunity came available. And when they finally recognized him and in genuine repentance confessed their sin, how did Joseph treat them? He forgave them. He didn't penalize them. He didn't discipline them any further. Now, he had disciplined them all the along, right? He put them through a sore trial to bring them to that point, did he not? But when they finally recognized him, when they repented of their sin, they said, we're sorry. We know we have this coming to us. We're at your mercy. Joseph freely forgave them. Friends, the same thing is true about Jesus Christ. When we finally recognize Jesus Christ, and perhaps the difficulties we go through our life are there to bring us to Jesus. And in genuine repentance, we confess our sin. The Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we're going to go even a little bit deeper. After he forgave his brothers... Do you recall what Joseph had them do? Yes, I hope I will re- I'll answer for you. <laughs> yes, you will remember. Joseph told them to go home and proclaim that he was not only alive, but was seated on the throne next to the king. Do you recall that? He didn't just say, now I'm going to go tell daddies, and no, no, you're going to go home. You're going to gather others, and you're going to tell them the truth that I am alive when you sought to kill me. And that I am not just a pauper, but I am seated on the throne. The same thing happens with each of us when we come to Jesus. When we confess our sins, he repents. We we repent to him. And he forgives us. Then he turns to us and gives us what is known as the Great Commission. He tells us to go and make disciples, sharing with others that we indeed serve a living Savior 
who has, as the scripture says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, think about this. If they simply went back and told Jacob that Joseph was alive, would that have been true? Yes. Would it have been the complete truth? No. We don't just have a living Savior, but we have a king, an intercessor, a high priest on the throne in heaven that needs to be told. Not only, I'm guessing the fact that he was alive was a thrill for Jacob, we saw in our scripture reading, but when they told him, and by the way, he's second in command of all Egypt. It almost was unbelievable. The Bible says that his heart stopped. Now, I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but it was quite a shock to the old man, was it not? Now, think about this. When Joseph sent his brothers on to his father, he didn't do so empty-handed. He gave evidence that the claim was true. When Jesus returned from his mission complete, he took with him evidence in the form of resurrected saints who went before him as tokens of the great harvest still to come. And God the Father not only saw that Jesus Christ was back, but that his mission had been accomplished and that the plans could go forward for the future. Which, if you've never read the account, just as we saw here in our scripture reading, let's look there again in the book of Genesis. Go to chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Read in verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Which, I mean, to his credit, they had been throughout their history quite a pack of liars, right? But they give evidence, right? But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob the father revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And you read the story on, and you see that as he's coming down, Joseph comes out to meet him. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures of a reuniting of a father and son that you'll see in the entire Bible. It's beautiful. Now, parallel that if you've never done it before. I beseech you, go home and pull out Desire of Ages. Read the last chapter of Desire of Ages. It will change your life. You see the reunification of the son when he returns from the father. Because you see in the picture of Joseph, they were, they were in Canaan together, but the son went down into Egypt and went through all of this difficulty, was good as dead but then comes back, and not just comes back as he was, but is then seated on the throne and reunites with his father. You see that in the same story of Jesus. The father sends out his son, and they're separated for a time. And there was a time of deep darkness when, according to to, to inspiration, we understand that Christ couldn't even see through the portals of the tomb. You read there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's pleading if there's any other way. But when the mission was accomplished, The son reunites with the father and gives evidence that his mission worked. Read that last chapter of The Desire of Ages. It's fantastic reading on this. But we're still not done. 
When Joseph brought his brothers and all whom they brought with them, because notice the brothers came back down into Egypt, but they didn't come alone. They brought others with them. Amen? We should do the same thing when we go to heaven. They were treated not as slaves or second-class citizens, but as joint heirs with Joseph and given the best of the land of Egypt. They deserve to be treated for slaves for 40 years too, right? But he doesn't treat them that way. He puts them right next to him. He says, you pick the best of the land. I'm going to give you the best of the best. When Jesus brings us and all whom we bring with us to heaven, we will be treated not as second-class citizens, but as the scripture says, as children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The Bible says that he will not be ashamed to call us brethren. And when Joseph opened his, uh, you know, revealed himself, he didn't say, I am now your master. He said, it's me, your brother. When Jesus opened, he is our Lord, he is our Savior, he's our creator, he's our redeemer, he's our priest, he's our king, but he's going to look at us and say, you are my brother. It's a powerful thought. Welcome. And finally, in the story of Joseph, there's not, even a, not just a look at the second coming, but also we see a picture of the final end of sin and the restoration of all things. Let me explain. Though his bones would someday be carried up out of Egypt, you recall that was Joseph's dying request, don't let my bones stay here, right? He wanted to go to Canaan too, even if it was posthumously. Though his bones would someday be carried up out of Egypt, the book of Genesis closes not with Joseph abandoning Egypt and returning to Canaan, his original home, but instead making Egypt the new home for himself and his Canaan family. He says, I'm going to live here and you're going to live here with me and this will be our home. Similarly, follow this now. Though going up to meet his father and even now completing his work of salvation in heaven, Jesus has promised that our home for eternity will not be with him in heaven. Now I know that sounds heretical to say, but we will not live with Jesus in heaven for eternity. Jesus will live here with us on the earth made new for all eternity that this will be the headquarters. He says, instead of you just coming to me, I'm going to come and be with you. And the new earth and the new heavens will be our home. That this little world, this little Petri dish, this experiment in the, in the, in the, in the sin and rebellion that it has become, God's going to wipe away all of that and restore it into the original ideal. And he says, not only will this be an outpost of heaven, this will be the centerpiece of my government too. I'm going to live with you right where you are. It's a beautiful thought. And my point today is simply this. I didn't want to go through a study of the book of Genesis and learn merely history and life lessons from Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the different characters. There's plenty of characters, and we should be familiar with them. We should know their stories backwards and forwards. We should learn our scriptures. We should have our daily devotion. But the point of scripture is not merely knowing scripture. The point of scripture is to know Jesus Christ, whom the scripture uplifts. It's to see in every aspect that the Bible is trying to show us Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
Jesus was the one who declared, these are they which testify of me. If you were to continue in going on your own beyond Genesis and you were going to Exodus, you would find the same thing. You would find, sure, the story of Moses, but it typifies the life of Jesus Christ. You would find the sanctuary, which is an actual physical tent, but it foreshadows the ministry of Jesus Christ. You would see the exodus out of Egypt and God's leading with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, but who does that represent? Jesus Christ. The whole transition of Israel out of this sinful Egypt into the promised land of Canaan is supposed to be a metaphor to teach us about God's leading of us out of sin to heaven. You think about the the feasts of Israel. They weren't just a round of ceremonies that they were supposed to keep on a calendar at their appointed time just for the sake of having days off. They were supposed to be prefiguring Jesus Christ and all of his ministry and activity for us. All through the, then, of course, you have the specific prophecies that aren't even veiled that say Jesus is coming a first time and Jesus is coming a second time. Then, of course, the Gospels tell us about Jesus. The Apostle writers tell us about Jesus. And finally, the, book of the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, these are they which testify of me, he wasn't just saying that offhandedly. He means it exactly as it's written. Yes, we can know the history. Yes, we should learn practical living lessons from these stories. But the most important lesson we can learn from any study of Scripture is to see Jesus in the pages. Jesus in the pages. I believe with all of my heart that we need to be more diligent in our study of the Scripture, not just for raw knowledge's sake, but so that we can have a closer and tighter walk with Jesus. Because I firmly believe that with these eyes that will not taste death, Jesus is coming soon and I will see him. And I want to know him before he gets here. I want to be familiar with who he is. I want to understand his plans. I want to understand the depths of his love. I want to understand his character. I want to become more like him so that when he comes back, I can go from this world to the next seamlessly. Friends, Jesus is coming again, but next time it will not be in a type or a shadow, it will be face to face, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if it's our desire to know him and see him and go with him then, it is our privilege to know him and see him as we study God's word. So study the word of God. Continue to study through the Bible, but don't just look for stories. Look for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.